Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. No one should care more about the poor than you do. There are many people who are organizing for the relief of the poor today, whether that's nonprofit organizations, it can be government agencies, it can be individuals. Some know Christ, some don't. We're glad, very glad, that that's happening. But we are Christians, and as Christians, you have a long heritage, a reputation, if you will. Christians are those people who care about the poor. And here we are after so many generations and we take up the gauntlet and we don't, in some sense, if I can put it that way, want to fail the generations who've gone behind us. There are people in this world who don't know Christ who care about the poor, but may God prevent that any person in this world should care about the poor more than you care about the poor because you're a Christian and that is part of the definition of what Christians are. They are the people and always have been who care about the poor. It was the cruel German thinker Friedrich Nietzsche who gave an opinion among our enemies. <laughs> he was one of them. But even he recognized that Christians are those who care for the poor. He said, people like us, he said, they seek to preserve, to preserve alive whatever can possibly be preserved. They've preserved too much of what ought to perish. How much did they have to do in order to work with a good conscience and on principle to preserve all that was sick and that suffered, which means in fact and in truth to worsen the European race? You can see why the Nazis were quick to take Nietzsche as their own philosopher. And yet, may God grant that his accusation about us always be true. We are those who pity and seek to preserve the weak those in need, those who without our help would perish. Care for the poor was not a value in the ancient Roman world when the New Testament of the Scriptures were written. Rome cared about power and power was all. You have a Judeo-Christian background. It's what Nietzsche calls the poison that's ruined Western civilization. You feel pity. Even those who are not believers because of Jewish and Christian influence today tend to feel a certain pity toward those who are weak. We like the underdog story. It was not at all this way in ancient Rome. Power was everything. If you were poor, that's sad for you. It was not guaranteed you'd get pity from anyone. And then into that ancient Roman world stepped Jesus of Nazareth, a Jewish rabbi. And he came saying shocking things like this. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. When you give a feast, he taught, invite the poor. Nobody did that. That's why it was shocking. Sell all that you have, he told a rich young man, and distribute to the poor. And when he was in the temple and saw a poor widow surrounded by generous rich donors take her two small copper coins and put both in the offering receptacle, Jesus' words were, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. And of course, the greatest argument above all of these that Jesus cared for the poor was that he himself was poor, and he had the choice not to be. 
He lived on the donations of others and had nowhere to lay his head. Christians care about the poor. You're Christians, you care about the poor. May we care more than anyone does. That's why I've taken just this single verse today for our sermon. It could have been attached to last week's sermon because it does follow logically from the verses last week. But my fear was that if I included it there, we would just breeze over it <laughs> as a kind of conclusion or an ending, and I don't want that for us. So what I've done is I've taken this verse, and we are going to spend our time today focused upon the universal Christian care for those who are poor, which is expressed in Galatians 2.10. Just so you remember, back in chapter 1, Paul began making the argument that lasts through chapters 1 and 2 of Galatians, and it is this that his gospel came to him from Jesus, not from people. And despite what any false teaching Judaizers may be claiming, his gospel did not come from the leadership of the church in Jerusalem, as significant as they were. Because it took him three years even to see them. He was there two weeks. He left a long time. Then, after 14 years, came back. And that brings us to where we are in our passage. And when he came there, he didn't get anything from them. He already had the gospel that he preached. But I could rephrase that because, in some sense, he did get one thing from them. And that's what verse 10 is about. So let's see that. Let's begin in verse 9, leading up to 10. And when James, Jesus' half-brother, and Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars in the Jerusalem church, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. What we have right here is the meeting of the most important Christian figures in the early church and perhaps of all time, besides Jesus himself. You have on the one hand, as we've seen, those leaders of the church there in Jerusalem. And of course, in early Christianity, since Christianity was birthed out of Judaism, if you will, early Christianity found its focal point right there. Its hub was Jerusalem. That's where it began as it spread out. So that was the important church. That's where everyone was looking. Even the new Gentile churches looked to Jerusalem for counsel. They looked to them. And so you have these pillars who were the leaders of that church. James, Cephas, John, great men who we still revere today. We read their writings and are benefited by them today. And they meet together with none other than the Apostle Paul. Half your New Testament, half the letters written by this man in the ancient Near East dramatically converted on his way to Damascus and made the primary proponent of the gospel to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish people. And these two great groups of people, Paul with Barnabas, James, Cephas, John, they meet together. What I take to be the Acts 15 council, some take it something else and that's fine, but clearly they meet together. And when they come together, Paul's whole point has been neither side needed to make any adjustments to their gospel. Both groups had received their gospel from Christ himself. On the one hand, from Christ as he lived, the disciples who were with him, his half-brother. And then on the other hand, Paul, 
who had a direct revelation on his way to Damascus and perhaps others afterward in Arabia. They both had gotten their message from Jesus and when they compared notes, they perfectly aligned. That's Paul's point. But when they meet together, they not only share this gospel, they also share one strong desire. Our text begins only, meaning the Jerusalem apostles, after comparing notes, same gospel, we accept you, right hand of fellowship, and they had one piece of counsel for Paul. It's not a command, but it is a piece of counsel, and it's the only one. That's what he says, only. This is it. And what is it? Well, it's something that Paul himself already is eager for. So Christianity in those early stages are both, on both sides here, eager for this one thing. What is it? The poor. Remember the poor. Christians, in a sense, have an accent that we should be recognized by. People should recognize our Christian accent of care for the poor. It's like when you talk to someone from another country, you might recognize their accent. Oh, you're from this country. When people see our lives, every part of our life ought to be shaped in such a way they say, oh, I hear a care for the poor. Are you a Christian? It's been that way, obviously, from the very beginning. So what we want to do today in considering this verse is to consider it under two headings. The first is going to be the counsel given itself, remembering the poor. What does that mean? And then the second point I want to make is that this is a task that these people did together. Nobody by themselves. But it was something that the churches worked together toward. So let's just begin with the counsel itself, which of course was counsel given to Paul by the Jerusalem leadership, but by the Holy Spirit. It's also counsel, really a command that's given to us. It's our heritage. We're Christians, and it is this to remember the poor. Our text says, only they asked us to remember the poor. Now, if you'll let me split that one more time, really what you have there is the command to remember, and then who do you remember? The poor. So let's just begin with the object of who they wanted him to remember. They wanted him to remember the poor. It's right that we as Christians should take into our hearts every person in need in this world. You might think, that's too much. It's such a world filled with massive needs. Then you're going to need a bigger heart. So you live in this world and as Christians, whether someone is a Christian or a Muslim or a Buddhist, whether someone is old or young, man or woman, lives here, lives far away, makes no difference to us, we feel a great pity compassion and love for those who suffer and are in need. You can see this, of course, in our evangelism because when we share the gospel, as pastors have pointed out, at least one pastor has pointed out, when we're sharing the gospel, it's to deliver people from ultimate suffering. And if that's our concern for them, then how much should we also care about the suffering in this life? And if there is a way that we can alleviate suffering for others, we want to do it. It's part of what it is to be a follower of Jesus who touched lepers. We touch lepers. We care about those who are suffering, all who are suffering. So there's a sense in which we ought all to remember all the poor in the world, any who are in need. When we are going down the road and there's the wounded man, we do not stop to ask, are you a Samaritan or are you Jewish? 
are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? You're not a Christian? Oh, no. <laughs> we, we take the person in dire need and we change their tire. Or we, in this case, lift them, put them on our donkey, take them to the inn and make sure they're cared for before I even know who it is because that's a person made in God's image. So when we think of remembering the poor as Christians, we care about all the poor. We care about all who are in need. But having said that, the poor in our text are, I don't believe is to be taken of all the poor in the world. There is a very specific group of poor people in view in our text. Namely, as we'll see, the poor believers who lived at Jerusalem. We'll come to that. Let me give you what we'll see later in Galatians, just in keeping with what we've said. When we get to chapter 6, Paul will say, here is the attitude we're to have. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. It's exciting. That's what you're called to. That's wonderful. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. That's your attitude. If I can alleviate any poverty or any suffering, as I have the opportunity, I want to do it for everyone. But there is a special focus for us as believers that we take care of our own. Those who are of the household of faith. That idea of a household of faith means it's because we're a family. Not just us as a local church, but the church in Eldoret is our family. Believers anywhere in the world, that's our family. And we know the scripture says if anyone doesn't care for his own relatives, especially those in his household, he's worse than an unbeliever. He's denied the faith. So there is a special burden we ought to feel beyond just generally the poor to those who are in need who are believers, especially to those of the household of the faith. If you particularly take care of the needs of the children who live in your house, your children, no one is going to come to you and say, well, why are you being partial? Why are you taking care of your children, not the other children? You have a special calling to them. You're not going to be mean to the others. You're going to help the others as you have opportunity, but you have a special calling to them. You and I as Christians have a special calling to meet the needs of believers. Call it favoritism if you will. It's the way the Bible presents it to us. Now our passage confirms this because when he uses this term, remember the poor, it almost certainly is in reference to the poor believers and especially those living in Jerusalem. Now, how do we know that? Because Paul applied the counsel given to him here. And when you read the first three letters in your New Testament written by Paul, Romans and 1st and 2nd Corinthians, in each of those three letters, he talks about a contribution of money he raised among the Gentile churches to take to the poor believers in Jerusalem. In other words, he took this counsel and he did it. Here's what he said to the Romans in Romans 15. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia, that include the Philippians, they, they were giving, and Achaia, that includes the Corinthians, have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. That's who he has in mind in our passage too. The poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it. And indeed they, the Gentiles, owe it to them. 
For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, the Jew, Jews at Jerusalem who are Christians, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessing. In 1 Corinthians 16, Paul actually notes that he had also given instruction to the Galatians after this letter on how to raise support for this very reason too. For the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. Now, why specifically the poor among the saints at Jerusalem? Well, we know from Acts chapter 11 that there had been a great famine over all the world. That when Paul, before our text right here, had been up in Antioch, before he came down to Jerusalem, there were some prophets, including a man named Agabus, who went up and prophesied there would be this great famine over all the earth. And Palestine, or Judea, where Jerusalem is found, was not a very wealthy area in general. There was a lot of poverty there. And so when it was hit like this with a great famine, the need was immense. And we're not here talking about needing a second car or something, which is great, good. We're talking about needing food, needing food. So there was a great need for those Jerusalem saints. So Paul goes, remembers the poor, raises funds, has it sent down there. This is a point worth mentioning. Why I talk about this? Because if you dedicate yourself to be a good faithful Christian and have a heart that is open to pitying the poor, you will almost immediately come across a problem known as the problem of selection. How do you know where to give your limited resources? Because you can't meet every need in the world. Like Jesus said, the poor you always have with you. It's not a discouragement to giving, but it is a reality check. You can't meet the needs, even of every poor believer in the world. How are you going to make choices of who you remember? How do you pick whom to give to? You can be, you must be selective. And this isn't, by the way, what we say here, meant to be paralyzing to anyone here. You say, I want to give, but then we talk about being selective, where you give, give somewhere reputable, and then you back off because you go, I don't know, it's too much, I don't have time. I don't mean that. It's better to give to, to just anybody than not to give at all, okay? But the very best is to be selective in your giving. You can see that here. If, if the poor are specifically those of the household of the faith, then what they're not telling Paul is, I know you're a preacher of the gospel, but actually we want you to spend all your time helping all the poor people everywhere in the whole world, wherever you go. Just dedicate yourself to that. Certainly Paul would have a pity and compassion for all of them, but they meant a specific group. They meant the Jerusalem saints who had a specific need, food, in a poor part of the world after a great famine. How do you be wise as serpents in your giving to alleviate the needs of the poor. We have already mentioned the first criterion. Prioritize meeting the needs of poor believers. Are there needs in this body? You guys are great at this, preaching to the choir here. You meet those needs. You do it. You start right here. So well, what about over there? Well, we'll get to that too. But start right here. The brother and sister you see, start with them. If anyone sees a brother or sister in need, don't close your heart against them. So we start right here. You start with believers. There's a priority there that goes to the household of the faith. The second criteria as you're giving to alleviate 
the needs of the poor is insofar as you are able, if you can, give in ways that you know won't be wasted. It's simply a matter of wisdom. You only have so much seed to sow, and then you've got to wait till God gives you more to sow it again. So if you can, and you can't always, but if you can discern ahead of time, this ministry wastes most of the money given to it, maybe don't give to that ministry. This is why it's good that there are financial checks put in place for nonprofit organizations and so forth. This is very biblical. It can feel like, you're telling me not to give? No, but think about when Paul was writing to Timothy, who was overseeing a church, he told Timothy, don't take widows on financially as a church if they don't meet certain criteria. He said, quote, let a widow be enrolled if, and then he gives a list. They're a certain age, they have a certain need, they don't already have family taking care of them, they're godly, they've devoted themselves to good works, meeting the needs of the saints. If they meet those criteria, then we can take them on as a church and support them. We'll meet their needs. He said, but refuse to enroll younger widows because he was concerned that they would become busybodies because they don't have to do any work. And so even there, Paul set a criteria for the giving of the church. He said, you're the church. You're supposed to just give to everybody. But there was a criteria set. I hope every heart here feels a real weight when it encounters a homeless person begging by the side of the road. And probably, I know this, because you guys are godly and you love the poor, many of you wrestle with what do you do when you see that person there. Do you give, but you don't know how they'll use the money? Many, of course, will waste it. Others won't. They're in dire need. If you don't give, maybe their kids don't eat. So now what do you do? Some of you have been tormented by that thought. Let me not help you at all, okay? You can do either one. Either one can be done to the glory of God because it's a case in which you can't really discern beforehand how they're going to use the money. And if you feel led, whatever that may mean, you know, if you feel led to give to that person by the side of the road, good. Do it to the glory of God with confidence. Know that you are carrying on the great Christian reputation of caring for the poor. If you're someone, on the other hand, because you're not sure how they're going to use the money, prefer to go buy them food and bring them food. Wonderful. Do that. Or if you would rather take your funds and invest them in a reputable organization like the Evansville Rescue Mission because you know the funds will be used well to meet that same need, wonderful. That's great. You can do that. You can do that. We'll all get along. It's fine. Do either one. The key thing is, is your heart open to them? If you're not giving directly to them, you still ought to feel this burden that pushes you to give somehow to care for the poor. Now, some of you are in another example when you think of who do I give to, and it's maybe the hardest one of all. You're the one where you, you know you're being taken advantage of. This may be a grown adult son who has a drug addiction and, of course, comes to his mother and says, Mom, I don't have food. And what do you do as a mom when your son says that to you? I'm not going to give you some broad counsel because the situations vary so much. Let me at least just say one thing which is clear in this text. It is okay for us as Christians, concerned as we are for the poor, to be selective, to use wisdom and be selective in our giving. It's not okay for us not to give, but it's okay for us to give selectively. 
So that's one of the things you see here in the text. Remember the poor, but he means specifically the poor who are believers in Jerusalem. But of course, the command itself is remember. Only they asked us to remember the poor. You have two great enemies that want to keep you from giving. The first one is the most obvious. It is the monster known as greed. And it can be a powerful monster, especially in our context. It is the American dream that if you just set aside so much money, which happens to be all the excess that you have, then eventually at some point your life will be nice. Or if you just have these two nice cars, nice house, this, this, this. And so you've got to keep up with the neighbors. It's greed. You know greed. And that is one enemy that will keep you from giving for the poor. As for the rich in this present age, writes Paul, they are to be generous and ready to share. And when Paul lists the series of vices by which the Corinthian church could tell if someone claiming to be a believer was not a believer, he lists greed right next to sexual immorality, idolatry, reviling, drunkenness, and theft. So that is one thing that prevents us is we see a need, we could meet the need, it's a real need, we've been selective, we just don't want to give the money to do it because we have other uses, non-necessary uses, but we have other uses for it. It's greed. But I would say that the second monster, the second enemy that you have for most of us is much larger than the first. And it is simply apathy. We go about our days and you think, look, I've got enough to keep my attention all day long. I've got kids screaming at me. I've got bills that need to be paid. I've got a calendar that is as full as a calendar can be. I already, I've got to provide for my own. I've got to take care of my wife and my children. My I've got to already have enough to occupy me. How could I possibly add on to this something else? And so what happens is although it's our great Christian heritage, it just gets crowded out of our life until it's not even a part of our life to meet the needs of others or to be concerned about the poor. You just have apathy. You just don't have time for these things. It's not that we're maliciously conspiring to take away the money of the poor. It's simply that we don't have time to even notice the poor. You remember Jesus' parable about the rich man and Lazarus that begins like this. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Do you notice in that story, it does not say that the rich man mistreated Lazarus. It doesn't say he went out there and kicked him. It doesn't say he wouldn't give him any scraps from his table. He probably did. It doesn't say that he was being malicious or unkind to that poor man. He was just too busy to notice. He didn't notice. He didn't care. He felt an apathy about Lazarus. He certainly had enough provision to take care of Lazarus. Lazarus was in proximity to him right outside his gate. But he was too busy doing what? Looking at himself with his fine linens in the mirror, preparing a sumptuous feast for himself. If we want to align ourselves with God's heart for the poor and needy, for most of us, it's not going to require that you travel, although some do, like here did. It's not going to require that you travel to some 
underdeveloped or developing nation. It's not going to require most of us to start some nonprofit, though some will. It's only going to be a matter of making the choice that you will be aware of the needs of others. When we look at Christ upon the cross, aren't we glad that he was aware of our needs? We didn't send him a delegation. When he saw us entirely impoverished, dead in our sins, deserving of eternal judgment, having nothing that we could do to escape it, having nothing in our bank account by which to buy our way out of condemnation forever, though he was rich, he became poor. He is what the rich man should have been in the parable, leaving the sumptuous feast, going out, finding us, the dogs licking our sores, stuck in our sin and hostile to all things of God, and Christ came all the way out there, and just like David took Mephibosheth, he takes us and brings us to his table and sits us there. That's what you have in Christ. He, though rich, became poor so that you impoverished entirely before God, could have the riches of eternity given to you, a never-ending inheritance worthy of kings and queens, and it's yours. And when we see that, our hard apathy is meant to just melt. This is why Christians have, to use Nietzsche's words, ruined Western civilization <laughs> with our pity. Well, let's keep ruining it. We can't help but ruining it if that's what Nietzsche wants to call it. We can't help but have pity for the poor because we're the poor who were pitied. That's why I think our text specifically says they wanted him to remember the poor. They could have just said, raise money for the poor. That's what they meant. But it's given as remember because that's the hardest thing. We live our lives and simply forget, but a heart that is awakened by Christ remembers that there are people suffering all around. And anything I can do to alleviate that suffering, I wish to do. Paul, of course, already had such arduous travel plans. I mean, when he lists everything he experienced, he's being beat with rods over here. He's being shipwrecked over there. He's being stoned over here with stones and left for dead. He's traveling day, night, cold, heat, doesn't have enough clothing, doesn't have enough food, doesn't have enough to drink. There are enemies out there. There's enemies in here. Listen, you don't have an excuse not to remember the poor. <laughs> Paul remembered the poor. And every church he went to raised a contribution to send to the Jerusalem saints. They weren't even where he was. But he remembered them. It was a priority. That's what they say. Only they asked us to remember the poor. It's only because they could have asked all kinds of things. But this was a priority for them. Only do this one thing. Remember the poor who need food in Jerusalem. So that's the bulk of this text. It is this command to remember the poor. May we do it. But I do want to make one final point here, which is in our text. And it is that not only do we see Paul being encouraged to remember the poor, but we see him remembering the poor together with the Jerusalem leadership. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is not a text where you have the Jerusalem leaders and they're the ones passionate about the poor. They're the soup kitchen Christians. And then you have Paul and he's like, that's not really my thing. I'm more an evangelist, a frontier missionary. So you guys help the poor and I'm going to go reach the Gentiles. Notice, they know his mission. They know it's hard. 
They say, remember the poor. As you're doing what else God's called you to, remember the poor. And then Paul's response is, guys, that's exactly what I already want to do. <laughs> it was upon his heart as well. This was something they were doing together. We know that Paul and Barnabas were, as he says, the very thing I was already eager to do because in Acts 11, Paul and Barnabas had already come down from Antioch with a gift from that church to give to the believing saints there in the Jerusalem church. They'd already given one contribution. They didn't say, ooh, did that, check that off, did our good Christian work, let's move on. No, the need continued, and so he says, I'm still eager together with them, the Jerusalem leadership, we're eager together to meet the needs of the saints here who are poor. This is actually what's said in Acts 11. The disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea when there was the famine. And they did so, sending it to the elders, Jerusalem leaders, by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So it's something they've already been interested in doing and have already done. So these two groups, who are quite different, one focused on Gentiles, one focused on Jews, one staying here locally, one going out there, one sort of personality, other sorts of personalities, different in many ways, so much so they have to have a council and work things out, different in many secondary matters, are united in this desire that they both have to care for poor Christians together. Now they could work on this project together with joy because... They had the same gospel. There were no theological issues at play. That's what's meant in our text when he says, only they asked us to remember the poor. He means that's all they asked because they had nothing to add to our doctrine. Our gospel is the same. We're already on the same page. So we can work together to care for the poor. It's something they did together. For you and I, what an important point. Our task hasn't changed, even if we're not apostles, but as a local church, we and individuals, we are called to work together. Not just me giving money to the man who's homeless, although it should include that, if you're called to that, but working together because that's much more effective. Together as a local body to meet needs, as we saw, Eldoret and other needs that come up, the food chain, people bring food to people. Working together with other good local churches that have the same gospel as us. Doing the gobbler gathering. Raising up food to send for the rescue mission to use. Working with good organizations. If you're saying, I don't know how to do this practically. I, I don't know where are the people with needs around me. If that's you, put this on your calendar. Last Sunday of every month at 7 p.m. A group from Faith Bible Church and everyone's welcome goes to the rescue mission down on Walnut. When you park in the parking lot, there's a building on the left. It's the chapel. Walk in there. You will find people from Faith Bible Church who will be presenting the gospel and doing some music and just spending time loving and talking with, alleviating, helping homeless men. You can do that. If you don't have any other options, just go do that. Talk to Dan Gilock. He helps head that up. He'll get you set up and you can go do that. We also work together with the rescue mission. They're different than us. We're different than them. But we work together with them, just like Paul did with the Jerusalem saints. But perhaps an even better parallel as we come to a conclusion here and 
It's always bizarre to me, but I suppose at some point it should stop being bizarre. I did not in any way plan this message to correspond with us presenting the Elderette Church to bring them on for support. But as I was praying through this passage just yesterday, I thought, wow, <laughs> that's certainly the Lord's doing. I mean, in the history of our church, we've never quite had uh, an experience as identical to Galatians 2.10 as what you just witnessed this morning. I don't think we've ever had it that clearly. Here Paul is, and there's the Jerusalem church with poor saints who are in need. They're great, genuine brothers, entirely equal in the gospel, and there they are by the accident of where they're born. There's a poverty, there's a famine, they can't control these things. There's genuine, sincere need, and here's Paul over here, and he's not going to forget about that need. He's going to raise money from churches that have excess, and they're going to send it over there to meet their need, and they're going to respond with rejoicing, and it will be a beautiful thing. Look, here's Faith Bible Church. We're on this part of the globe. We have an excess of money, of wealth, that we can provide. Over there is the church at Eldoret with 80% unemployment in that local area. We've got 2 or 3% unemployment here. You don't have to be smart. You just put the pieces together. <laughs> Let's remember the poor. The poor. Not as some objective group, the poor, that we care about, but that's, that's our family. That's our family over there. Don't forget them and how God provides so that we can keep the meaning of this passage and remember the poor. It's what Christ did for us on Calvary. It's what we have the pleasure of doing. Look, you've got lost neighbors. Their pleasures are to have large houses nicely furnished. That's their pleasure, to get the new truck with the massive engine. That's their pleasure. You can do that, but listen, we don't care about that. We're Christians, always for Christians. This has been our pleasure. This is our hobby, if you want to call it that. We get to care for the poor and the outcast and the vile of this world. We get to care for those who are in need. This isn't like just a command. Even here, it was given as advice, as counsel. And it is an appeal that the Holy Spirit makes to all of us in our day. It's not like you've got to lock up your bank accounts because we're at church and they're going to try to take our money. It's not like that. It's, listen, you have the privilege of alleviating needs just like Christ did for you. And they will share in your joy and you will share in their joy. What's more exciting? What's more interesting than that? Not sporting events, I promise. This is the real stuff in life. And this is the reputation that lies behind us as Christians. And if I may put it this way, let's not be the generation of God's people who ruin the reputation. But let us carry it on and extend it still further and be known by this accent. Be known as the people who remember and are active in caring for and alleviating the needs of those who are poor, especially in the household of